What is it that consumes us, distracts us, fulfills us, devours us, exhausts us? If we were to remove that thing, even if only for a moment, could it bring focus to our hearts? Could that time recharge us? Could it give us joy? Teach us dependence? Help us worship? Could it renew intimacy? Teach us to adore? Bring contentment? Jesus went into the wilderness to fast. As he emptied himself, he was filled. If we followed his model, emptied ourselves, might we be filled too? Join us during this season of Lent as we focus on Jesus. Not empty religion, not rote obedience. We deny ourselves alongside Jesus, that we might in our hearts and minds see his beauty just a little more clearly. All right, so this is the seventh and final week of Lent, and this week we are going to be fasting from our voice. So when you think about people who have passed away, it's common to take moments of silence for them. And so as we reflect on the grief of Jesus' death on Good Friday, we are going to be fasting from using our voice. And so this isn't just a fast from voice, it's reflecting on Jesus' death and his resurrection. And next week we'll get to celebrate on Easter, which is really exciting. So when we think about fasting, we're going to be fasting from texting, talking, and interacting for an hour every day as we focus on honoring and adoring Jesus. And so I am going to pray through a condensed version of Valley of Vision prayer. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the power of darkness down, and lives forever. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose, and in his life I live, in his victory I triumph. In his ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, you who were lifted upon the cross, ascended to the highest heaven, you who as man of sorrows, who crowned with thorns, now as Lord of life, wreathed in glory, once no shame more deep than yours, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel, now an exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. What could be done than thou hast done? Your death is my life, your resurrection is my peace, your ascension my hope, your prayers my comfort. Amen. This fast will take a little bit of intentionality on your part. You'll have to set up the time and the space to be able to set aside your phone, set aside your emails, set aside conversation, um, and just spend an hour quiet and to spend an hour in adoration of Jesus and his work on the cross. And so my encouragement to you over the course of this week is to not let the, nece the necessary intentionality cause you to just kind of write off the opportunity uh, to create that space. And so if it ends up, you know, short of an hour, you know, the Lent police aren't showing up to your house. Um, but be intentional about creating some time and creating some space where you can just get totally silent before the Lord and spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, spend time adoring him and looking forward to the celebration of his resurrection next Sunday. 
If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26 this week, which once you kind of get yourself situated there in Luke, you'll see that uh, that's, that's like three of our modern Bible translations sections. There's one about the 12 apostles, one in the CSB that's, the heading is teaching and healing, and then there's Luke's version of the Beatitudes. And so we're going to work through all three of those sections. Uh, we're going to spend the most time in the Beatitudes, but in order to be able to do that well, we need to kind of dial in the fine-tuning of the context of those Beatitudes, and that will happen in verses 12 to 19. Kind of gives us the setting and the venue that Jesus delivered these within. And what this is all about is that the Pharisees, we just saw four confrontations that Jesus had with the Pharisees. One about um, associating with sinners at Levi's party, and the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, hold on, we are a holy and set-apart people, and you're here with sinners. Why are you doing this? And Jesus says, I, I came for sinners. One is about fasting, and the Pharisees are saying, hold on, this is an important ceremonial religious practice that we do as Jewish Israelite people, and your followers don't do it, Jesus. Why is that? And Jesus said, well, because I'm the groom, and when the bride and the groom are together, we don't fast, we feast. And then two of them are about Sabbath, and the Pharisees look at Jesus, and they say, hey, this, fasting, or this Sabbath is a really big deal. We once got exiled from our land because of not observing the Sabbath. Why is it that you're picking grain and eating it, or you're healing on this particular day? And Jesus said, I define the Sabbath because I'm Lord. Of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is an opportunity to celebrate me, not an opportunity to just mind your arbitrary rules. And now, in order to provide some clarity about who the people of God are, who the followers of Jesus are, what they look like, what they sound like, what they do, Jesus gives, or Luke gives us, Jesus offering some teaching about who his followers are. And in Luke 6, starting in verse 20, all the way through the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to set apart who are my people and who aren't. That's what we're going to see today. And it starts with a description of the disposition of the followers of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is dispositionally different than the rest of the world. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was or if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13. There's a scene toward the end of the movie where um, the astronauts are getting ready to re-enter uh, Earth's atmosphere and there are all sorts of like technical issues with that. It's fraught with danger. And one of the engineers is standing there having a conversation with someone in mission control and he's, he's enumerating the challenges. There's questions about the heat shield. There's questions about the parachutes. There's a typhoon that's in the general area where they're supposed to splash down. And there's like an angle of trajectory issue. 
And the person he's talking to says, I'm well aware of all of these. This could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. And Ed Harris, who plays Gene Kranz in the movie, who was the director of this whole mission, says, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. He's dispositionally different. He sees all the trouble and all the problems, and he says, I don't think this is something to lament. I think this is going to be our finest hour. Jesus, in these Beatitudes, is going to show us that his followers are dispositionally different than the rest of the world. We don't value the same stuff. We don't cling to the same stuff. And because we don't value and cling to the same stuff, we've got a different disposition as we navigate the difficulties of life in a broken world. But in order for us to get there, we need to set the stage first. So if you've got Luke 6 open, I'm going to start by reading verses 12 through 19. It says this, During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. He came to them, or they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. We're going to kind of get the setting dialed in and the context dialed in, and then we'll look down at what Jesus begins to teach. Let me define some terms for us first. The first term is disciple. We use that word a lot around here, that we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus. A disciple simply means a follower, a student, or a learner. And what's Important for us to notice in this passage is that Jesus goes out to pray. He prays all night long. When daylight comes, he summons his disciples and chooses 12 of them, which ought to key us into the fact that there are more than 12 learners or students with Jesus at the time. Because if he could summon all of them and then select a subset, there must be some who aren't a part of the 12 apostles. So Jesus has this crowd of people there. In fact, when you get down to where Jesus begins to teach, we're told that there's a large crowd of his disciples, that must be more than 12, and a great number of people who are coming from various places, some from the north, not even from the same country, and some from the south, from Jerusalem, who are coming to hear Jesus. Why does that matter? Most of the time when we picture Jesus in his ministry, I think we picture Jesus and 12 men walking around. But the reality is that there were Jesus and 12, and then this larger pool of followers and learners, of students, who were present with Jesus much of the time. Now, inside that large pool, Jesus designates 12 as apostles. Apostle means messenger, delegate, envoy. Twelve of the disciples are given the office of apostle. 
Jesus designates them intentionally, gives them a different distinction. And 11 of those 12 are going to be the individuals who lead and oversee and are used by the Holy Spirit in the explosive growth of the early church. 11 of those 12 are going to be individuals who carry the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth in obedience to Jesus' great commission. 11 of those 12 are going to be martyred after the death of Christ. The apostles are disciples, but they are also apostles, a particular subset within a large group of disciples. The best, easiest way to think about that is that all forks are silverware, but not all silverware is a fork. So all disciples are followers, but not all disciples are apostles. There were 12 of them designated, set aside, And then they end up being, 11 of the 12, end up being the individuals in the book of Acts that push forward the growth of the early church as the Holy Spirit works explosively through them. Just take a quick look at the names of the individuals that Jesus calls his apostles. Simon, named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, Judas, and Judas. The only reason you know any of those names is because of what they do in the days ahead. At the moment, no one really would have had any idea who these guys were. They were more or less nobodies. Common men who had previously been working common jobs in an unremarkable time and in an unremarkable place. They end up changing the world, not because of who they were in and of themselves, but because of the power of the gospel message and the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. Oswald Chambers, author of the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, says it this way. God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance upon them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. All of that to say this, that's no different today. God is still in the business of using common men and common women in unremarkable times, from unremarkable places, who do unremarkable jobs, and yet have an uncommon dependence upon him. And God uses them to do explosive things for his church. You do not have to be the person who stands up in front of a congregation and speaks. You do not have to be the person who sells everything to go and live among a foreign people. You do not have to be, just have been born with, certain gifts and talents and abilities to be used by God in a powerful, powerful way. You need to be available and you need to be willing to renounce all of your worldly benefits and all of your earthly talents and God will take you and do remarkable things in and through you thanks to the presence of his Holy Spirit. Uncommon men from uncommon jobs in an unremarkable era who have uncommon dependence upon Jesus and God changes the world. He's in the business of doing the same thing today. Look at the setting. We're told that Jesus comes down from the mountain with his disciples. That designation is going to be important here in just a minute. 
When he comes down, he's met there by a large crowd of people who want to hear him teach and who want to be healed by him or have demons driven away by him. And evidently he meets their needs because we're told power was going out from him. What we have following this, beginning in verse 20 and continuing through the end of chapter 6, is something very similar to what Matthew records in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In the Gospel of Matthew, we refer to that chunk as the Sermon on the Mount. This one is obviously shorter, but it does contain some similar elements. It's got a version of the Beatitudes, but they're a little different than Matthew's. It has an encouragement to love one's enemies, though Luke's recording of that is actually longer than Matthew's. There's an encouragement not to judge, though Matthew and Luke differ in the content of that encouragement. And there's a statement about two foundations. Matthew gives the same statement about two foundations, but Luke accompanies his with a statement about two trees and the kinds of fruit that they produce. There are different thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount, and then what Luke records here, which many refer to as the Sermon on the Plain. I'll give you my opinion as best as I can tell it. Jesus spent three years traveling and teaching. During that three-year period, he used various forms of teaching throughout his ministry. Sometimes he gave sermons, something like this. Sometimes he gave parables. Other times he just made pronouncements. Sometimes he taught about his identity. And it's likely that over the course of three years, he gave similar teachings in different settings at different times. It would appear that at least one time, Jesus went up onto the side of a mountain, preached to a large gathering of people, and Matthew recorded it as the Sermon on the Mount. It would appear at another time that Jesus came down from a mountain, was met by a large group of people, and gave a similar set of teachings to a group of people in what Luke has recorded as the Sermon on the Plain. This isn't something all that unfamiliar. Peggy Noonan, who was a speechwriter for Reagan, talked about how when he was campaigning, they would show up in certain cities and she would have spent tons of time, her and her team, researching and preparing a speech and Reagan would walk into the room and he would say, I'm gonna just give the speech. And then he would go out And he would give some form of a similar speech. But if you heard it in Dallas and then you heard it in Chicago, you would have heard something that followed a similar outline, but the word for word would not have been the exact same. That's similar to what we have here. Two renderings of the speech, the sermon, both incredibly valuable. But I say all of that because I want to set something up here. I want us to treat Luke 6 on its own terms, not on Matthew's terms. The reason I say that is because just look at the Beatitudes quickly. Blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry because you will be filled. Oftentimes we, we see that and we insert what we know from Matthew. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke doesn't record those. He records something different. I believe, and this is not my own belief, there are others who believe the same, that this is a 
slightly different teaching that Luke records than what Matthew records. And that Jesus gave those slightly different teachings, not because, you know, Luke and Matthew have bad memories, but because Jesus wanted to teach something not contradictory, but complementary. His disciples, this group of followers, is hearing him teach in these various places. At one point, it appears, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. At another time, he said, blessed are the poor, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's different. It seems as though in Matthew, Jesus is saying, here are the inner qualities of those who will be my disciples. While at another time, Luke records Jesus saying, here's the dispositional reality of those who are my disciples. Let me show you how I get to that place, what Jesus means, and what it means for us today. A follower of Jesus is dispositionally different than the rest of the world. Jesus comes down from the mountain, stands on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples. Look at verse 20. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, if you've got your Bible open and you're someone who marks in your Bible, go ahead and underline or circle at his disciples. Who is this teaching intended for? Not just the Beatitudes, but the whole sermon in Luke 6. Who's it for? Followers, learners, students of Jesus. Looks up at his disciples, his followers, and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets." Jesus looks at his disciples and begins to teach. That fact alone is crucial and we can't miss it. The teachings of Jesus are intended for the followers of Jesus. Here's why this matters. Jesus is about to instruct his followers what it means to be one of his followers. He's going to describe their identity. It makes no sense to hold non-followers of Jesus to the teachings of Jesus. When we do that, we make the gospel a legalistic set of rules that if only you would follow, lost person, then you would be saved. That's to take the gospel and negate the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When the church looks at unsaved people and says, this is how you need to live, We take the thing that we hold precious because it saved us, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we look at people who are not saved, who are lost in their sin, and we say, what you need to do is act a different way. And once you act a different way, then you can come to Jesus. 
When we try to do this, we embitter people to the beauty of the gospel. Before the gospel changes a person behaviorally, it transforms them dispositionally. If your fundamental disposition is antagonistic or apathetic toward the reality of God and the teachings of Jesus, then you're never going to be interested in the shifting of your behavior to match the teaching of Jesus. The gospel is a theological reality that transforms us dispositionally. That dispositional change provides the soil for behavioral submission to Jesus. I'm going to say that again. The gospel is a theological reality that transforms us first dispositionally. And that dispositional change provides the soil for behavioral submission to Jesus. When you try to force those things out of order, it does not work. We get this intellectually. Like we gather in churches, we celebrate the truth of who Jesus is, and we get that the Bible's commands and that the teachings of Jesus are to be obeyed by the followers of Jesus. But then we kind of lose sight of it at times. And we think that our primary war is with the lost people around us, not for the lost people around us. We lose sight of how this works, and we think that what we really need to do is just go to absolute battle against the sinful, broken people around us rather than going to battle for the sinful, broken people around us. And when we get that mindset wrong, we end up frustrated and angry and bitter at the world around us rather than grieved and lamenting and heartbroken over the lost people in the world around us. The cultural societal impact that the church has in the world flows not from mandating that non-Christians today obey the teachings of Jesus, but instead from the beauty of dispositions that have been transformed by the power of the gospel. In Acts, when we're told that everyone is, quote, speaking highly of the church, do you think that's because everyone in the Roman culture of the day unilaterally agreed with what the disciples and the followers of Jesus at the time were saying was the right way to live and thus joined them? I don't. I think it's because regardless of what happened, they saw something that was just otherworldly, dispositionally different in this early church, and it was attractive. And at the very least, we can speak highly of them even if we don't agree with them. Now, the gospel and the truth of God's word define what ultimately is and is not right, good, just, and beautiful. We know that to be the case. But we should not expect broken, sinful people to always agree with us on those things. And when they disagree and apply pressure to us as a result of our disagreement, it's the disposition of a follower of Jesus that ought to bubble to the surface. Jesus is going to describe what that disposition is. So we have Jesus teaching his followers what it means and what it looks like to be one of his followers. And he says, here is how the world is going to know who we are. And he begins setting at odds the value system of the world and the value system of the kingdom of God. Let me give you two more definitions. Blessed. 
Jesus says. Blessed means happy, joyful, deeply content. Verses 20 to 23 are all about these followers of Jesus who are blessed. Verses 24 to 26 all start with the word woe. Woe means how terrible or pity or alas. It's more of a lament than a condemnation. And so the four statements of those who are blessed correspond to the four statements of those that Jesus has woe for. So the four statements set at odds are the poor and the rich, the hungry and the full, the weeping and the laughing, the hated and the well-liked. And Jesus's point is this, that a disciple's disposition is not tied to the world's value system. Jesus is going to show that for his followers, there's a reversal of values with regard to the things of the world. We are not controlled by the same thing that the world is controlled by. We do not cling to and grasp after the same things that the world clings to and grasps after. We do not prize the same things that the world prizes. Let me start with the woes, because I think it's easier to see with clarity what Jesus is saying when we start with that which is causing him to lament or to pity. Jesus says that it is a pity that there are those in this world who are rich, who are full, who are laughing, literally that word means sneering, and who are well-liked, and they're content with that being enough. That's the key. Why? Because they've already received the reward and the comfort of that which they sought and prized and valued. They're rich now, but their richness has given them everything it can offer. They're full now, but their fullness has given them everything everything it can provide. They're laughing now, but their laughter and pride has given them all that it can give. They're well-liked now, but their good reputation has provided all that it can. And the real pity in all of that, Jesus says, is that if you build your life on those things now, woe to you who are full now, who laugh now, if you build your life on those things, then when your earthly life is over, There will be no comfort, no wealth, no popularity, no laughing that's able to help you beyond the day your life ends. The ability of those things to provide will have run its course. These are the things that our society prizes. In Jesus's day, and it's not so different in ours, wealth, comfort, happiness, earthly happiness, popularity. And when those things run out, Jesus says, alas, pity, how terrible it will have been to have built a life on those things. Make note of the disposition of Jesus. He's not frustrated. He's not angry. He's not bitter. He's not condescending. He's compassionate. Whoa. Sadness. That which God prizes most highly is God. It's not selfish. 
It doesn't make God egotistical. God knows that the greatest satisfaction to be had for all of his creation is to be found in him. And woe, pity, or sadness to those who think they can find it somewhere else. Jesus teaches this all throughout the Gospels. One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. That's Luke 12. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Matthew 6. Notice that Jesus is not saying, I'm pronouncing a curse on these people. Instead, he's saying, it grieves me that there are people who build their life on these things because I know what that means for them eternally. And I know that there's greater satisfaction available for them. Whoa, how terrible. He's saddened by that reality. That's the compassionate heart of Jesus toward those who are far from him. He's not surprised. He's not mad. He's not condemning. We would be wise to earnestly pray that the Lord would stir similarly in us. Look at verses 20 to 23. On the other side of these things, Jesus says, blessed, blessedness resides. Deep contentment, deep happiness, deep joy. And you read it initially, and it seems like Jesus is saying that everyone who is poor Everyone who is hungry, everyone who weeps, everyone who is hated is blessed. But we know that can't be the case. Because you read the rest of your Bible, and God never celebrates people in poverty. God never celebrates people who are hated and excluded. God doesn't celebrate hunger. Those who are truly blessed are those who know Jesus, prize God above all things, have their sin forgiven, etc., and yet might be poor in the moment. Blessed are those who have the kingdom of God, verse 20, and yet are poor. They're still blessed, and they know they're blessed. Blessed are those who are submissive to the kingdom of God, and yet are hungry right now, weep right now, are hated right now because of Jesus. They're blessed. He wants his people to know it, to grab hold of it, to cherish it, to hang on to it. You might be following Jesus and find yourself in poverty and the world would say that your life is ruined. And Jesus would say, you're still blessed. You might be following Jesus and find yourself hungry for a season. And the world would say, your life is ruined. But the follower of Jesus knows that they're blessed. You might be following Jesus and find yourself weeping. And there is plenty to weep about in the world. Jesus himself is going to weep. The world would say, your life is ruined. The follower of Jesus knows that they're blessed. You might be following Christ and find yourself hated. And the world would think that your life is ruined. The follower of Jesus knows that they're blessed. We're dispositionally different. And Jesus' message here is that you can tell who his people are because they do not prize what the world prizes. Thus, when the world takes away that which it cherishes, they still walk in the reality of their blessedness. That blessedness is dispositional, not primarily situational. There was a hymn written in 580 B.C., It's one that we still sing today. It was written by an Irish saint named Dylan Forgale. Dalen Forgale, excuse excuse me. It was not translated into English until like the 1800s. The third verse says this. Riches I heed not, 
nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, the first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. You tell me where he took that from. Sounds a lot like Luke chapter six. How will the world know who the people of Jesus are? One of the ways it will know is by our disposition when the world's most treasured priorities go absent in our lives. The world will see that a follower of Jesus is dispositionally different than the rest of this world. What does that mean for us today? It means this, and I don't say this to be trite, and I don't say it because I'm the pastor. I say it because this is what Jesus is saying. The followers of Jesus have something unique to them that ought to make them the most content people on the planet. They have Jesus. And unfortunately, I think much of our world, or at least the American society in 2021 right now, sees us not as some of the most content people on the planet, but possibly some of the crabbiest. And what a shame that is. The world ought to see that our satisfaction is in Jesus, that it's only ever been in Jesus, that it only ever will be in Jesus. They ought to see the blessedness that we know is ours, the quiet confidence of lives that cling not to the fleeting things of this world, but to the surety of Christ. And so as an application this morning, I want to offer you a simple prayer that you could give every single morning. It comes right out of our devotional reading from this week. It's in Psalm chapter 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Imagine if every follower of Jesus in America woke up in the morning, looked into the mirror, and prayed to God, satisfy me this morning with your unfailing love so that I might shout for joy all of my days. And then when they flipped on the news and saw all the brokenness out there, they didn't get crabby and bitter, but they realized I have been satisfied and I can grieve like Jesus over the brokenness and the lostness of the world around me. Oh God, would you satisfy me in the morning with your love so that no matter what comes my way, my disposition would be one of steady contentment, deep contentment. God, would you fill me with a joy that knows it is blessed. My life is blessed regardless of whether or not I'm holding on to all of that which the world prizes and prioritizes. I want to end here. Mitch, worship team, you can come up. All of the moral teachings of Jesus, and we're going to see a lot of them in Luke, they're exemplified in the life of Christ. They're fulfilled at the death of Christ. They're empowered by the resurrection of Christ, and they will be completed in us at the second coming of Christ. Did you catch that? All the moral teachings of Jesus are exemplified in the life of Christ, fulfilled at the death of Christ, empowered by the resurrection of Christ, and will be completed in us at the second coming of Christ. We don't take a moral teaching of Jesus and turn it into a legalistic law that if only we would follow, then we will be saved. We've negated the gospel at that point. What we do is we take the moral teaching of Jesus and then we look at Jesus. 
We see it exemplified in his life, and then we look at the cross, and we see the way that he fulfilled it in his death on the cross. Then we can look expectantly to the tomb, because it's from that place that it gets empowered inside of us, thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then we can look forward in hope to the fact that one day Jesus is coming again, he's going to glorify us, and that thing will be all that we know. Okay, it's Palm Sunday. Here's the picture. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem a week before he's crucified. He's lived the last three years poor, homeless, meal to meal, thanks to the kindness of those who supported him, and being attacked and mocked and hated by the Pharisees. Look back down at Luke 6. Poor, hungry, laughed at, sneered, hated, reviled, excluded, right? There's this huge crowd of adoring people, but Jesus is under no delusions about these people. They're about to shout for him to be crucified. The same ones that are excited that he's there are going to be the ones that say, give us Barabbas, send Jesus to the cross. And yet here is Jesus, dispositionally different in the face of having nothing the world would say is most important. You never see crabby, crotchety, curmudgeon Jesus. What you see is calm, content, compassionate Jesus. And so he rides into town. And you know what he does when he gets there? He stops outside and he weeps over the city. Why? I'll give you his own words from Luke 19.42. If only they knew this day, what would bring them peace? None of the stuff the world is grabbing after. Him. And seeing the misplaced values of the rest of the world does not lead Jesus to anger, resentment, frustration, exasperation, or condemnation. He's dispositionally different. It leads him to weeping and lament and woe. And then he'll go to the cross and he will hang there naked, abandoned. He'll cry out, I thirst. And then what will he cry out? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then he'll rise from the grave and he will walk out of the tomb and he'll look at his disciples And he'll say, I'm the Lord. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even unto the end of the age. So this thing that I exemplified in my life, that I fulfilled completely on the cross, I'm now empowering inside of you that you might go and make disciples and check it out. I've also let you know I'm coming back. And when I come back, you're getting glorified bodies in a place with no sin and you'll grab onto these things and hold them fully and completely for all of eternity. You want to live a life that's dispositionally different than the rest of the world? Look at Jesus and then keep on looking. Look at him on the cross. Look at him coming out of the grave. Look forward to him coming back again because there's the power to be a people who are just different than the rest of the world. How will you know who my people are, Jesus says? You'll know because they don't grasp after the things the world grasps after. And when life takes it away, they're dispositionally different. Amen? Wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's worship.